there's a reason why risk is there. It's sort of like the wall between the comfort zone and success, like outstanding success. You can be successful in the comfort zone too, but outstanding, unique success is on the other side of that wall of risk. Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. Well, he is known in a variety of ways with all these different titles. He's known as an entrepreneur, investor, trader, comedian, hedge fund manager, thought leader, influencer, podcaster, writer, but he's really a thinker. And even more importantly, he's a doer. He's someone who's not afraid to fail. And then what I love is he shares those failures and points the way for all of us. Uh, He has many books out. I mean, many, many, many books out from Choose Yourself, which is always listed as one of the top business books of all time. Lots of books on investing, like Think Like a Billionaire and advice books. I think it's called The Power of No, which I uh, love the word no. His website and podcast are, you must have seen them, James Altucher. And I have no idea, I'll say right up front, where this interview will go. I have no idea. And those of you who follow James know that nobody knows where it's going to go. And I'm sure he doesn't even know where it's going to go. So buckle up. Let's begin. And welcome, James. Hey, Skip. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. By the way, I have a feeling it's going to go into the area of mistakes. I just got your book, uh, The Book of Mistakes. Hold on one second. I'm going to hold it up. Just came in the mail today. I'm looking forward to reading it. Great idea to write a book with that title. It was a great title. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a contrarian, and I know that you are as well from reading all of your provocative posts and titles. So first question I have for you, James, though, you have all these titles. I mean, you're collecting titles more than you're collecting the art behind you. I mean, you you just seem to be collecting them. So before we get into anything, I'm just curious, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, my God, that's a great question, uh, because I don't know the answer. For better or for worse, I've done a lot of different things. So you could say... I've been a dilettante, or for me, it's been kind of interesting to do very different things. So I've been a writer, I've been a computer programmer, I've been an investor, I've shot TV shows, I've been a hedge fund manager. HBO. Yeah, I worked at HBO, I've worked for Showtime and HBO, and you know, and I've written for newspapers, I've been a, you know, like you say, a a stand-up comedian, I own a comedy club, I've been an an entrepreneur, an investor. So that just might mean I'm good at nothing, and I'm a dilettante. I haven't quite decided yet. But each day, I just try to focus on what it is I love doing, and then make sure the idea is sustainable. It's fun to do things that are hobbies, but it's nice too if you're good enough at the hobbies that they sustain themselves, they're profitable. Well, that's great. One of the things that you talk about a lot is losing and gaining money. And you're very public about this. I made millions, I've lost millions, I made millions again, lost millions, et cetera. And you share that. And I'm just curious, what is that experience? I've been rich and poor myself. What has that experience kind of taught you about money? That's a good question because usually people ask, like, what happened? How did you lose it? Or how did you get it back? But it's interesting. There are rules for money. People don't understand fully what it is. It's not a number in your bank account. It's very psychological. When you have a lot of money, you feel differently than when you're dead broke or when you have a middle amount of money. I've been all three many times. Let's say you had a lot of money and then you go dead broke and you have kids to raise and a mortgage to pay and you're married. Ah, it's so scary and it's so anxiety producing and it's so depressing. But if you start off not having a lot of money, like most of us did, like I did, I had nothing and was moving to New York City for the first time and had no money and was living in a one-room apartment with a roommate. And, you know, that was maybe one of the most exciting times of my life. So it also depends which direction you're coming from, which shows that money is not just a number. There's a huge, it's maybe 1% a number and it's 99% psychological because you don't really need much to live as a human. There was one period in my life where I only had enough possessions that would fit in a carry-on bag. And by the way, I say one period of my life. So this was just two years ago. So for two years ago, it was at the end of a two-year period where I just lived out of a carry-on bag and I moved from Airbnb to Airbnb. And you think, well, Airbnbs are 
are a lot of money. Some of them are. Some of them aren't. You can live extremely cheaply in an Airbnb. And I realized I didn't really need anything. But, of course, I wanted some money. <laughs> and so there's a psychology to it. There's, there's, there's like an energy to it. And I think it taught me to really, really respect the power that money has on our lives, on society, on how you feel about yourself, for better or for worse. You should, it shouldn't change the way you feel about yourself, but it does change the way other people think about you. It changes the ways you could help people. Money buys you time, which is infinitely more valuable than money. Five minutes of time, you can never get back, but $5, you could, even a million dollars, for better or for worse, you could always try to make it back and succeed at something. But I definitely now, money's also taught me about risk and understanding what risk is. Whenever you make a decision, particularly one involving money, but even one involving time, you have to ask yourself, did I really consider the risks in this decision? Of course, important decisions, there's more risk than less important decisions. And it taught me that even if you're a risk taker, and people think entrepreneurs are risk takers, but they're not. A good entrepreneur, the first thing they do before they make the decision to start a business is to remove as much risk as possible from the decision. So for instance, maybe before I start a business, maybe I get a customer and then I create the product that I could sell to a customer who, who I know needs it. So that's why like some crowdfunding platforms are great because you haven't created the product yet, but the crowd funds the development of the product and you know that the crowd who's funding you is your first customer base. That's one example of a way to reduce risk when starting a business, for instance. So I really got a, a much greater appreciation of risk when I was learning why am I such an idiot about keeping the money that I've worked hard for? You know, I've squandered it. You work years for something and then you squander it. It's as if you've wasted those years when that's also not true because you, you learn things too. So the, the other thing is I try to learn from every decision and every mistake I try to learn from because you're going to learn a lot more from your mistakes and from your successes. Why that is the case, I don't really know, but mistakes have a much more profound impact on your physiology and psychology, and so you force yourself to learn more from them. So when I was a kid and I was rising up through the ranks of the top young chess players, I would study all my games with a coach, and we really only cared about the games I lost. The games I won, I won them. I probably played pretty well. But the games I lost, I made some critical mistake. It's good to find it so I don't make that mistake ever again. Well, I, you know, I have a theory. It's interesting. You're talking about risk and these mistakes. And, of course, I love mistakes. I'm, I'm curious because – Book of mistakes. That's it. I'm curious because you're saying, you know, you have to uh, consider risk and entrepreneurs do consider risk or whatever. But in watching you, I'm just not sure. I wish I had interviewed Dr. Amen. I wish we could scan your brain because I think that your brain would light up differently than many because you're thinking about the risk, but – I don't know that most people do. Most people, I think, are so afraid of things, whatever it is out there, that they stop their ideas from happening because of that risk. The risk kind of stops them in their tracks. And, and you consider the risk, but you act, you move, you try, you idiot, you just keep going. Do you see yourself as wired differently? And how can others who are stopped in their tracks in fear and with anxiety and worried about risk get over that and move forward and just take a little bit of action. Well, what's interesting there is there's nothing wrong with not taking a risk. It's called the comfort zone for a reason. It's comfortable. Like everyone always says, get out of your comfort zone. Get out of your comfort zone. Why should I? I'm, it's comfortable. I, it's comfortable. I choose to be comfortable. But there's a reason why risk is there. It's sort of like the wall between the comfort zone and success like outstanding success. You can be successful in the comfort zone too, but outstanding, unique success is on the other side of that wall of risk. And it's important to realize that because the majority of people are in the comfort zone, which is fine. All your friends are there, your family's there, your teachers are there, all your institutions are there. So why leave it? But it's when you go to the place that's least crowded, that's where you could be successful. That's where you stand out. That's where... You start a business that never existed before. You write a book that says something unique and relatable to billions of people. So, you know, you have to get through that wall of risk to find kind of uncanny success. But I'm just as afraid or maybe even more afraid. I, I've been broke so many times after having success 
that I'm like abnormally afraid of risk. So I do take risks, probably even too many right now, but I am always analyzing how every day, how can I reduce the risk? How can I reduce the risk? How can I reduce the risk? Okay, I'm going to start a business. Let's pre-get some revenues before I start the business. I'm going to start a podcast. Let's find sponsors before I start the podcast. Let's find ways to distribute the podcast before I start the podcast. Just how many different ways can I reduce risk? That's all I think about. And so I'm obsessed with reducing risk because I'm terrified of it. But And you have 15 things going on, which also reduces risk. Yeah. So I like to divert. So we all get validation from hierarchies. We're hierarchical animals. So when you publish a book, you reload and reload the Amazon sales page to see how your book is ranking. Did it move up a rank? Did it go down a rank? So we get validation from where we are in the hierarchy, like every single primate for the past 3 million years. But the good thing about being human is that we can diversify our hierarchies. Like we can go from tribe to tribe. You know, apes can't do that. So you could say, well, I'm in the hierarchy of authors. I'll check my Amazon sales ring. But maybe I'm also running a business. And how are sales this month? You know, and that's another hierarchy. Oh, did sales go up? Now I'm in the hierarchy of fast-growing businesses and I'm doing well. There's lots of ways to think about hierarchies and, and diversifying them to re reduce psychological risk so that all of your validation is not dependent on one thing. Now, by the way, there's other things people, you, you should probably not need as much external validation. So people do things like meditate or whatever, or therapy, and that helps you reduce the need for external validation. But you can't completely reduce it. We're only human. We have human brains. We have primate brains. So every chemical in your brain, like oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, all depend on validation from the outside world. And so again, it's all about figuring out ways to keep confident, to keep healthy, to reduce risk, but again, you have to lean into that risk. The reason it's risky is because success is on the other side. And that's the risk keeps people out. Success is not crowded. So risk is the wall that keeps everyone out. And just being aware of that reminds you that, oh, this feels risky. Ah, that means there's success, potential success on the other side of it. In reducing risk, and you talked about reducing things, I mean, People may say, add minimalist to your title. You're not now or not not then trying to be a minimalist. You have more than 15 uh, pieces of art there. I, 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 got, I got married. So getting married turns you from a minimalist to a maximalist really quickly. But, you know, the process, James, of, of doing that was so interesting to me because, uh, you know, most people won't let it go for, you know, memories or for convenience or for whatever number of reasons, uh, psychological reasons. You had this passion to let go. And just free up yourself. And so was that part of this? Uh, how does that fit to risk reduction? I mean, most people think risk reduction, well, then I need to have every single thing around me. It helps reduce risk. You, you went the opposite way. Yeah, because I, first off, I wanted to reduce the objects in my life for two reasons. One is I wanted to prove to myself that I didn't really need anything. So it became kind of a discipline. Like I would pass a bookstore and I would say to myself, oh, I want to read that book. But I had a discipline. If I bought a book, I would have to remove something from my carry-on bag. And I didn't want to remove a shirt for a book because I can't wear a book. So I had my phone. I had a Kindle app on my phone. And I would just buy the book on my phone instead. And so I sort of proved to myself over the two and a half years I was doing this that I didn't really want money in order to buy things. What I did want was I wanted to be able to have experiences. And I think experiences are a lot more valuable than objects. Because if I buy a chair, all right, the chair is comfortable. You feel comfortable sitting in it. But then after a while, it's business as usual. You forget about the chair. Maybe you get tired of it. Maybe you buy another chair. Who knows? But with experiences, oh my gosh, I'm going to go have this great experience. And there's anticipation going up to it. There's having the experience and everything you learn from it. There's the memories later of the experience. And a great experience never leaves you. And in fact, it puts a stamp on your life and changes your life. There's before the experience and there's after the experience. The more great experiences you have, that defines your life. And again, I'm speaking externally. There's also internally you should find joy and happiness in your life no matter what, but that's also difficult. And the other thing is I wanted to free up the things I was attached to because I wanted to have more I wanted to have more time and energy to do things I love, to have more of the experiences 
that I love. And no matter what you say, like the more objects you have, the more kind of things that are sort of holding you down to those objects, as opposed to going out and finding experiences. Like I want to travel to this place, or I want to write a book, or I want to try this side hustle, or I want to meet these friends. You can now do and try things without being held down to your possessions. During this time, I was living out of Airbnbs. So I didn't have any sheets, towels, plates, dishes. If something broke, the owner of the Airbnb would take care of it. So I had no real obligations to buy or deal with the mundane. Now, I was fortunate in that my life circumstances were such for those two years I was able to do that. It hasn't always been that case before. It hasn't been always that case after. And for many people, it's it's rarely that case also. But I took advantage of it while I could. It's so good. And, and you know, things take energy and they take our energy. And yeah. we do remember experiences. I remember uh, leading a company as CEO. I, I switched from, you know, let's give somebody cash as a reward to instead let's give them a trip because, you know, take their family. And all of a sudden, it, you know, it's much more memorable and impactful than, you know, that money's gone after after three days, you forget about it and, and it's gone. But but you don't forget the experience. It's so powerful. Well, I want to talk about your bio because I love your bio. And I'm talking specifically about the line that says, for some reason, I've turned myself inside out and all my guts have spilled out onto my blog. And I love that for a lot of reasons. But why does that fascinate us? Why Why is it? Is it your vulnerability in that you have spilled your guts out of your blog? Or are we kind of like the bystander effect and kind of looking to the accident on the side here? Uh, what is it about that? That I mean, it's a genius marketing line, and it's true, too, if you read your stuff. What is it that, that pulls us into that? Yeah, it's interesting because it it's really gets to the heart of what people relate to. And I didn't really think of this consciously at, at the time. I was in a time when I had no real opportunities happening. I moved to, I moved out of the New York City, uh, New York City area to a much cheaper area for a while, and I would just sit around and write all day. I had nothing else going on, and I felt like I had nothing to lose. So I just talked about everything that I talked about: going broke and feeling suicidal and feeling depressed and feeling like oh, so scared and being an an addict of different things and just all the stuff I was sharing and people who had known me for years would call me up and, and say, are you okay? Are you, do you have cancer or something? Are you about to die? And I'd have to tell them, no, I'm okay. I'm just, I'm just writing. And other people thought I was insane. Like some people would say like, this is like watching a train wreck in action, you know, in real time. And so there was that kind of Fascination. We, we do know you're insane, but that's fine. That's good. We're inspired well, by it. We're inspired maybe every, by it. Maybe everybody is. Like I, I like to think for me, this was a, a process of finding my sanity after after being insane for so many years and you know pursuing things I didn't really enjoy doing, and uh, I really enjoyed this process of writing and and being vulnerable. I think people are also afraid. I don't want to say they're afraid to tell the truth. It's not like people are liars, but uh, although some are, but I think people want to have permission to fail. They want to know that it's okay. And I didn't realize that again at the time, but people would send me these notes saying, oh, thank God you wrote that. I was in a similar position. And now I see that, hey, if someone as messed up as you can get out of it, I could probably get out of it. And I would get a lot of letters like that. Or, you know, I used to do a lot of, you know, I still do, but I did a lot of financial writing and I talked about different times going broke. Well, how can you be uh, this finance expert, but sometimes go broke? And I knew all, I knew every person in the finance business from billionaires on down have had periods where they've gone insanely broke with nothing and living out of a car. And they usually don't talk about it. You just like, oh, I went from success to success to success. That's fine. You can learn from successes, but much better to learn from failures. And being honest about these failures was a shocking to people like, oh my gosh, this is, I thought this guy was this, this, and this. And it turns out he's also this, this, and this that were the opposites. And I was just being honest in ways that nobody else was, maybe they should have been. And so it showed a different life to people that, hey, no matter where people are on the success scale, they have their ups and downs. And even going forward, who knows, you know, what can happen. You, we never know what's, what's in the future. And it kind of removes fear from the equation a little bit. It even removes fear for me. Like, I don't, I would never want to 
wish going broke on anyone, and I never want to have that happen to me again. But I know if it does, I'll figure my way out because I've done it so many times now. And part of discovering how to get out of it was writing about it and sharing it with people. Well, what's your writing process? Because you write like like nobody's business. I don't know. I mean, it's just title after title and blog post after blog post and LinkedIn and media. I mean, on and on and on, everywhere, there you are. And so have you mastered cloning? What What is your secret? Like, what are you doing? Well, I've been writing every day since maybe 1991. So it's a, it's a discipline for me. I'll write every single day. Uh, on rare occasions, I'm so busy, I can't write, but then I try to make sure I at least do something creative every day just to exercise that creativity muscle. But if you write like every single day, you essentially have a, a book's worth of material every year, sometimes more than one book. And, it, and you just have a lot of content that you build up. But, but the process itself is I'll make sure I read, I'll read high quality writing at least two hours before I start writing. So by high quality, I don't know, it could be anyone from Ernest Hemingway to short stories by Raymond Carver or Amy Hempel or whoever, just high quality where I know they're thinking about every single word. And, and it's usually very vulnerable. Also these, these, these writers like Charles Bukowski is very, very vulnerable and honest, but there's like maybe a hundred go-to authors I'll, I'll read from. And then I'll start writing and I'll think either what's making me upset today. Like sometimes it's an opinion that I think I should express and then I'll tell my stories around it. Or maybe I'll think what's the worst thing that's happened to me in my life that's on my mind today. And then I'll start essentially in the middle of the story. Like I'm, ma I'm making this up. Like I was about to kill myself and then this happened and blah, blah, blah. So I'll start with right in the middle of the story with the most intense moment and then just the story will flow from that and I'll try to be as concise and minimalist in the writing as possible like no extra words but I'm learning every day I, I'm reading a book on writing right now this is 30 years every day I'm reading a book by Chuck uh Palahniuk Pal Palahniuk I don't know how to say his last name who he wrote Fight Club and a bunch of other novels he just came out with a book about writing and I'm reading the book and I'm learning so much about writing and here I've written 20 books I've had millions of copies of my books sold you have to always be a student and I'm always learning and I'm, and I love writing as an art form and storytelling as an art form and you know this relates to experiences no one writes about the chair they bought they only write about experiences stories are experiences Harry Potter doesn't write about the house he lived in as a kid he writes about going to a magical school and what happened to him and, you know, that's why experiences, again, are so much more valuable than anything else, because you could also write about them and, and slice them in different ways. I've written the same story, but you look at it from like 20 different angles and each angle is a different story. And, you know, again, a lot of that is how do you be honest in new ways and refreshing ways? Or if I'm writing an opinion, I feel it's very important to not be a spectator with an opinion. Like everyone who watches a football game can say, oh, no, the quarterback should have done this. You're just a spectator. Let, I want to hear from the coach. I don't really care what the spectator thinks. So I always try to make sure, am I a spectator here or am I? did I experience this? Did I live through something? So when I write about home ownership, I've owned homes, I've rented, and I've Airbnb'd. And then I've done my research. So I have an opinion on home ownership. And by the way, it's just my opinion based on my experiences. You could argue with me, but you'll argue from your experiences. So I'm, I respect that. You know, or I'll have an opinion on war, an opinion on college. And so, again, I, it's it doesn't do anybody any good for me to just give my opinion. Then I'm just a spectator yelling into the echo chamber. But if I have experiences and I tell the story, you always want to uh, – the, the story is like the boat where you put your opinion in and you send the boat off. And so if I have an, an opinion about failing or if I have a story that – could be encouraging or motivational to someone, I always package it up in a story and send it off. Again, you could write about, let's say you write about leadership or motivation. So many people say, well, this scientific research says do this. And then this scientific research says do this. I don't look at any scientific research. I just look at what happened to me and what it felt like and how it worked. And then what I learned from it personally, and then the reader could take what they want from it, but they do know it's from my personal experience. Although a lot of times people don't believe me that it was my experience. They think, are you making this stuff up? But no, I'm, because I've done lots of different things, I have lots of weird experiences. You do, and we learn from them, and it's fascinating. And uh, as someone who studies 
successful people. I've interviewed them and and tried to to capture the the experiences I've had and their mistakes and kind of channel them into the book. You've interviewed a million uh, different people and gained their experience and their perspective yeah. in addition to your own, which I think is something that I share with you because I'm always fascinated. Uh, it's always better to learn from someone else's mistake than from making it yourself, I think. And um, I, I'd, I'd love your perspective on this. All these successful people, yourself included, that you've interviewed and interviewed yourself, which I'm sure you've done, how do you contrast that success mindset that they have and the things they're doing with people who are mediocre? What are some of the differences between mediocrity and huge success? Are they as different as we think? Yeah, they are. Although the word mediocrity, I you know, again, it's fine being, you know, not aiming for the moon because there's a lot of pain that happens too when you when you go on on that opposite side of that that wall of risk. And so, although I will say great success happens when you take risks appropriately. Again, you have to reduce risks if you take them, but there's nothing wrong with just being comfortable. But I do think people who succeed have a lot of, first off, they're very focused on their health and not just their physical health, but their emotional health as well. Like if you're, if you're arguing with a spouse all day long, you will not be successful. If you're arguing with all your friends, you will not be successful or that's a very, very hard way to get success. If you're sick in bed, you won't be successful. If you're not practicing creativity, even in minor situations, you probably will have hard times being creative when, when you really need it to be successful because you have to be creative to do something unique that no one's ever thought of in the history of the planet to be successful. And, you know, I think that's one thing in common. And then the other thing is they're very curious. So they'll always ask, well, why are we doing things this way? Why don't we do things this way? Why does everybody own a car? What if only the drivers own the cars and then I could call up a driver just when I need one and I'll pay them a few dollars and they take me where I want to go? Will that be cheaper than spending $50,000 up front owning a car that depreciates in value? You always have to ask why about every situation, political situations. Why did we kill this guy from Iran? Well, let's dig a little deeper and find out. And then you learn things. Whenever you ask why and you think about it and you study it, you learn things. And it might not be the things you expected to learn. And a lot of times you do experiments. So I, I, I did an experiment a few months ago. Donald Trump tweeted this thing. I want to buy Greenland. It's like one tweet out of nowhere. I want to buy Greenland. And Denmark quickly tweeted back, Greenland's not for sale. Which, by the way, that's the first red flag when they tweeted that. Because everything in life is for sale. If you gave them $20 trillion, of course they'll give you Greenland. <laughs> but also the other red flag is, why did Donald Trump tweet that? What's so special about Greenland? So it was a really weird thing. And so I looked it up and I researched it. And oh, okay, I could see... On a global strategic level, there's some weird things happening in Greenland right now. But I didn't want to write it as an article. I wanted to do another experiment. So I figured out what would be an interesting format to write this up and experiment with. I always want to experiment with different ways of writing. Like you mentioned, like I could write an article and put it on LinkedIn, put it on Medium, put it on my blog, put it on Facebook. But what if I did, what if I put an article on Kickstarter? So what does that mean? Well, I started a crowdfunding campaign. I wanted to raise $100 million so I could buy Greenland. So that's an experiment. I've never done a crowdfunding campaign in my life. So I had to learn all about the crowdfunding platforms. I had to set one up. I had never done that before. You know, thousands of people have, but I never have. And then I'm able to write the article in the context of this is why I want to raise money for Greenland. And then it was fun. Like, here are the different tiers. Like, well, you could become an earl or a duke or a prince if you pay these, I'll give you a hundred acres of land if you pay these different tiers. Kickstarter didn't approve my campaign. So that was interesting. I had to learn why. And then GoFundMe approved the campaign and I launched it and I started raising money. People started sharing this crowdfunding thing and they were sharing it as if it was an article almost, but, but it wasn't because it was crowdfunding. So people would donate $10, $50, up to $1,000. And then a day or two later, GoFundMe shut me down because they realized I wasn't going to raise $100 million. So they were going to get all the chargeback fees. So they shut me down. I But I played it up like it was censorship. So now that that's a second story I have now is what happened. And so the experiment, if you call it that, was a total failure. You were going for King of, King of Greenland, though. That was your new title. I see where you were headed. Yes. And so I failed 
to raise a hundred million dollars. My crowdfunding campaign failed. That experiment failed. But there's no such thing as failure when you experiment because if you view things as an experiment, you're going to learn something whether you fail or succeed. You only experiment on things you don't know what the outcome will be. So once you know what the outcome is, you just learned something and you learn why that was the outcome and you tried something new. And so there's, there's that whole theory of the 10,000-hour rule, where if you put 10,000 hours into one field, you'll be one of the greatest in the world at that field. My theory is the 10,000-experiment rule. If you do 10,000 experiments, you're going to be a success because maybe 10 experiments succeed, but they'll succeed massively. And most experiments will fail, but just by the definition of an experiment, the definition of the word experiment, you're going to learn every time and you're going to learn things that nobody else has learned ever. And so you're suddenly going to be the best in the world at something. At whoever you uniquely are, you're going to be the best version of yourself after 10,000 experiments. And you or, forget the you forget the ones that fail, right? I mean, they're they're long gone. Or you use yeah. them, you use them to share. Right, like well, for instance, now I know how to do a Kickstarter. So right now, uh, I'm always in in the middle of like a dozen or so experiments. So right now I'm planning out a kind of card game and now I know if I want to, I can use Kickstarter to do a crowdfunding campaign for this game. And at the very least, again, it'll be an interesting story, what I've learned and what I didn't learn or what I failed at or what I succeeded at, depending on the outcome of this experiment. I love the experiment because it, it seems to reduce the psychological anxiety of being attached to it in, well, it's just an experiment. On the other hand, does it lack commitment? So, oh, well, whatever. I, I was just an experiment. Like, yes. how do you get that balance right? It totally lacks commitment. But that's good because most businesses should not be started. <laughs> so, <laughs> so overcommitment is the problem in some right. cases. Overcommitment is a worse problem than undercommitment. And the reason why overcommitment is a problem is because people have a hard time judging the risk of committing to something. How much time is this going to take? How much money is this going to take? I have this problem. Everybody has this problem. So I try to structure things. If I'm interested in going down a certain path, I ask myself, well, what are some tiny experiments I can do that risk little money and little time? But if the experiment works, I can move a little bit forward in this direction. I can do the next set of experiments. That's for me how I find a path that works for me. Oh, let's start a podcast. Okay, well, I've got a recorder on my iPhone. I'll pay Libsyn you know, or some other podcast platform, I'll pay them $10 a month, $20 a month. I'll record myself talking for a half hour. I'll upload the recording to Libsyn. So now they, they distribute it to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio. Now I have a podcast, The James Outlisher Show. Oh, let's call up my friends and start interviewing them on the phone. Oh, it's getting more and more of an audience. Great. Let's set up a podcast studio and have them come to my studio oh, it's even doing better now. And people want to advertise. So now these set of experiments turned into, six years later, a successful podcast. And also, by the way, I take content from the podcast and rewrite them as books in some cases. And so I'm able to do many things with the content. I'm able to slice and dice the content in various ways. And I learned so much. I'm able to take what I learned and, and apply it in ways that are unexpected that I would never would have known before. So it's not so bad to be as little commitment as possible at first and then build up when you start learning more and when you start succeeding more. And, and you never know. The little things you learn, maybe two years later, it'll apply to something else and that becomes the successful thing. And you use that. James, I'm a collector of quotes. I love quotes. And you have so many quotes, I wouldn't know where to start. I just want to focus on a couple because I'd love your reaction. I'd love to ask you a question. So in The Power of No, you say this, and it's not something you would think of would come in The Power of No, but, but it does. Being grateful is the bridge between the world of nightmares and the world where we are free to say no. It's the bridge between the world of delusions and the world of creativity. It's the power that brings death back to life, the power that turns poverty to wealth and anger to compassion. As someone who loves to talk about gratitude, and it, to me, it's, a, it's one of those key components of being successful and fulfilled, I'd love to know about your practice. Do you have a daily gratitude practice? How do you cultivate gratitude in your own life? So it's interesting because I think people say, okay, 
be grateful every day, list the five things you're grateful for every day. I like to pose what I call difficult gratitude problems to myself. So a simple example would be, let's say I'm stuck in traffic in New York City. So consequently, I'm extremely late for a meeting that's important, very important meeting. And I'm just, oh gosh, I, I hate myself. I'm late for this meeting. I'm always late. Like, why are we stuck in traffic? Hey, driver, can you go on the sidewalk? Go a little faster. Or So that's a difficult gratitude problem because that would be my basic reaction. Or I could take a step back and say, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful. I live in a city that has so many opportunities in it. It gets crowded like this. The reason why New York City has crowded traffic is because it's so many opportunities that I could potentially take advantage of either now or in the past or in the future. And it's just the cost of doing business in New York City. But I'm, I'm grateful I live here where the, the, the city of opportunity. So you're and, reframing it completely yeah, you're in ref- your mind. Right. You, you reframe it. It's easy for me to say, oh, I'm grateful I have children. That's kind of almost a cliche. It's so obvious. And so it's, the, the key Depends is to, on your children, maybe. Yeah, it depends <laughs> on your children. That's true, too, or it depends on the time. But, uh, you know, it's much more interesting to build that gratitude muscle. You don't get strong by lifting five-pound weights every day for years. You get strong by challenging yourself to bigger and bigger weights. And it's the same thing here. Like, with gratitude, you get a strong gratitude muscle by challenging yourself to more and more difficult things to be grateful for. Like when you feel like in your stomach, that tension, oh, something's happening and I'm scared or I'm anxious. That's the sign that you could take that physical feeling and convert it into a gratitude moment. It's a difficult gratitude problem. Any fear, you could turn into a gratitude problem. And that building that gratitude muscle honestly turns you into a more honest person. Like someone asks you to a wedding and, you know, you become instinctively, you're, you're grateful someone's asking you to a wedding. Someone likes you and asks you to a wedding. So it becomes more natural to express that gratitude and what about it makes it grateful. Like, oh, I remember when you two first were dating and you told me about it and you seemed so happy and I really want to be there to, to celebrate that. But there's this other situation that I am committed to doing. I have, it's my child is graduating high school and I want to be there. Or, you know what? I'm just not feeling well. I want to stay home that weekend. And I'm trying to take a step back from things. But thanks. And if they don't, if they can't handle that, that's on them. But I'm being uniquely, I've turned a difficult situation like, oh, I really don't want to go to this wedding. I'm going to have to lie to them the day before. Listen, guys, I broke my arm. I can't go. Which then... They get kind of sense that you might be lying, but if you're just as if you, how if long do you have to show up in a sling, James, in public? Well, I think that's the problem is that then I don't pretend at all that I've ever had a broken arm. Well, I love I love how you're taking a fear or an anxiety or a difficult moment and turning it into a moment of gratitude because right there is is different because most people would think, oh, I'm only going to practice gratitude when everything's like you know perfect, uh, and that's not how you steer into it. You're steering into the traffic problem, turning it into gratitude. That's unique. I'll tell you a story. There was uh, one time I, once again, I had done really well with a company and the company was public and I was on the board of directors. I had millions of dollars worth of stock and I get a call. By the way, I was on the set of the TV show Billions. They were filming their the pilot episode of the series, and I was they had, the the writers had invited me to just watch them filming it. So it was it was kind of out in the country a little bit, and so I had to get there. And I get a call in the middle of the day, emergency board meeting of this company that I was on the board of, where I had millions of dollars worth of stock. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be the best day. They probably sold the company. I'm going to make a ton of money. This is fantastic. I get on the phone. Turns out. The main shareholder of the company, the founder of the company, had misrepresented how much debt he had to the IRS. So the bank was calling in all the loans, and the bank was literally on the way to the company to kick out the CEO, lock the doors, and then they would sell off. It was a billion revenues company. They would sell off parts of the company to other customers they had. And they had the right to do it because we had broken the covenants of the debt. Not, won't get into the weeds. But so literally, I went to zero on that investment from millions in a day. And not only was I scared financially, but I was scared what is going to happen tonight when I'm not going to be able to sleep? What is going to happen when I have nonstop nightmares tonight? And here I am. I'm stuck out 
in the middle of nowhere on this TV set. Like, I just wanted to go home and cry. And there was nothing I could do. I tried to pose idea after idea after idea. But they were like, James, James, we get it. But it's too late. And so I'm there. And I'm, I figured, you know what? This is a chance for me to apply everything I've been writing about. Like, I can't only apply these things when things are going well. So I've got to apply them right now. So I'm physically healthy. My friends invited me to their their own personal experience of filming this dream of theirs. This was a dream of mine to see a great TV show being filmed. I was so grateful they had invited me, and I got to watch the director do all his... He explained to me why he was doing different shots. The writers explained to me. The producers explained things to me. I was learning so much. I was seeing these famous actors that I admired for years. And so I figured, you know what? I'm going to enjoy this experience. There's no reason why I can't enjoy this experience. And I did that. And and then I went home. It wasn't, I didn't have nightmares. And and I leaned into it and figured, okay, there's opportunities here. I won't, I didn't really like the people in this company and turns out with good reason. So now I don't have to spend any more time with them. And it was great. Now, yeah, I, I could have used the money, but we're all young and we can figure it out. Right. What are you going to do? Yeah. There's so nothing to do. So I had to, I had to make the most. If I had just left right then, I would never have this great story of A, using my, my own advice to others. I was using for my own personal situation, like I was supposed to, like everybody should. You're listening to your own podcast. Right. Exactly. And I believed it. I believe these are the ways that I helped myself out of prior bad situations, but now I was able to consciously do it for myself instead of going to my normal routine of panic and it worked and it always will work because like you said there's nothing else to do and then I, I I had a great day that day other than that part and then I had a story to tell about following my own advice and how it worked for me it's so good well I want to go to another quote from choose yourself it's one that helped me a lot because you know I'm just ingrained in like oh the the critic or the person who's running off the reservation how do we make them happy how do we how do we fix this and you say this, which is so good, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter who your audience is, 30% will love it, 30% will hate it, and 30% won't care. Stick with people who love you and don't spend a single second on the rest. Life will be better that way. And that made a big difference to me, uh, not to chase everyone, not to worry about all the naysayers, et cetera. Why is it though that we're so hardwired to worry about that one negative comment? You know, why do we do that instead of focusing in on the core and how do we guard, how does the average person guard against worrying about way over here and just like refocusing in on the few that are, are passionate and for us? Well, I've been thinking a lot about this recently, which is that a lot of things we know instinctively so we instinctively know that, you know what, better to focus on the people who love us than the people who hate us, just in life. We instinctively know that, but yet, like you say, if you write something and put it on Facebook and 99 comments are positive and one comment is, you are just the worst human being on the planet, you feel bad. and Because you're like, I'm, I'm not, I'm the second worst. Why do you think I'm the worst? <laughs> And you feel like you should argue with that person, even though 99 out of 100, and they're all strangers, by the way, so you shouldn't and, even and, care and anyway. They, and they may be certifiably insane. I mean, right. who knows, right? Yeah, or a kid, you know, a 12-year-old yeah. in his mom's basement or whatever. But I think maybe there's an evolutionary reason. Like, we used to be in tribes of 30 at most. So if somebody didn't like you, there was a reasonable chance you could get kicked out of the tribe, and then you were going to die. Because then you were going to get go in the jungle. You'd have to figure out how to get food, and wolves would probably eat you, and you would, or another tribe would find you, and you would get killed. And you know, most there was a, a really high chance that you would probably die a viol an incredibly violent, painful death uh, if you were kicked out of the tribe. And you really needed people to like you and to show that you were good with working with others and working in the tribe. And there was only thirty people, so. If, it's not a lot. So if only one person didn't like you and he told another person not to like you, that's already like almost 10% of the tribe is like hating you. And uh, so it's scary when somebody doesn't like you. That's why I think the ratio... I, I just want to pause for a second because only you, James, would take criticism 
into the wolves may get you and eat you, <laughs> take you off. That just cracks me up, just the way you think. I wouldn't have thought the criticism is taking us back to a tribe where the wolves are dragging you off into the jungle and eating you uh, limb by limb. But that's that's awesome. I, I think, and that's my theory about why this is true, because it probably spikes those those brain chemicals that were the same brain chemicals that would spike. It's the same thing. Like, let's say you're walking along and like, let's say, again, we're back in caveman times. You're walking along and a bush rustles right next to you. Well, it could just be the wind or it could be a wolf in the bush. And if you treated those things equally, you're probably going to die because one out of 20 times, it will be the wolf. Most of the time it won't be, but no matter what, the advice is the same. You should run. You should be afraid because of the one out of 20. So that's why it almost takes 20 good comments or experiences to match the one bad one that that ratio probably dates back to there was a one in 20 chance it could be a wolf instead of the wind and i think we see this in in every part of life that uh uh the negative kind of is is, we're much more aware of it that's why newspaper headlines they focus on fear more than greed uh how how upset are the newspapers that iran is no longer in the news because they had world war three in the titles for three days and now it's gone now it's only prince harry so uh, you know, they're looking for their next thing. But the reason why it's important to, to vocalize what's happening here is that then it's something you could hang on to remember. Like, oh, I remember that this is the reason why I'm probably anxious about that one bad comment. So I should I should ignore it. And that helps you focus on, on the good. Also, there's an argument to be said, if you're not that controversial, you're not saying anything interesting. So some people probably should you're probably doing better work if some people hate you and some people like you. If you're doing something that everyone likes, then it's probably not that interesting. If you're a stand-up comedian and you just tell funny knock-knock jokes and everyone likes it, yeah, that's great. The audience will have a fun time. You know, they'll go home fun time, but they won't remember anything you they said. They won't remember you. But if you go up like Dave Chappelle and you say, "Hey, everybody's focusing on the opioid crisis. Why didn't they focus the same amount of resources on the crack epidemic?" Well, in the 80s, well, because the opioid crisis is white people. And then his joke is like, hey, everybody, just say no. And his whole idea is he's pointing out that Nancy Reagan's advice to the crack academic is kind of useless when you think about it in the context that, you know, affecting a different demographic. And did he say the funniest thing in the world? No, but it's the thing I remember. As a right. pro- I can't remember a single knock-knock joke out of the thousands told me over my life. But I remember, you know, his point there and his interesting twist on it. So he, but it was controversial. Everyone's like, Oh no, Ooh, what is he saying? Right? Like, it's not demographic. It's uh people are dying. Well, he's making fun of people dying. No, right. Exactly. And no, he isn't. You know, that's where people get, yeah, they get ahead of themselves. My and, cousin died of opioids. How dare you? Right. And, and we do that. I mean, we rush, but, but you, you know, you, you don't rush. Well, I want to read one more quote because it's another good one from reinventing yourself. Noticing your reactions to suffering, anger, pain is the key to well-being. And I think that's very interesting, too, from someone who's made money, lost money, studied success, studied failure. Noticing your reactions to suffering, anger, and pain is the key to well-being, the reaction to it. Most of us don't even want to think about it. We just want to move forward. But you focus on not only the thought, but your feeling and your reaction to it. How often do you do that? Do you see people tuning into that or just leaning away from it? I think people lean away from it, but it's really important. And these are emotions for a reason. Like there's nothing in our bodies. You know, you could view the body as like just this bag of bones and chemicals. There's nothing in our body that is wasted. We've evolved. It's, you know, according to Charles Darwin, every part of us has evolved for a reason. And so when you're feeling these things, it's an important signal and you have to pay attention to it. So if, if you're scared of something, ask yourself why you're scared. Oh, maybe I'm uncomfortable risking this amount of money. Is that rational to be uncomfortable with that? Or maybe I can reduce the risk or maybe I can reduce the money or maybe it's a bad idea, but I'm being somehow manipulated into it. You can ask, why am I feeling this way? Oh, I meet someone new. Why, when I left that dinner, did I feel bad about myself? Why every time I eat with this per eat dinner with this person, I feel bad about myself afterwards? Is it something about me? Am I jealous of this person, or is it something about them? They're always putting me down for some reason. You know, it's important to ask why am I 
anxious? Why am I scared? Why am I happy? Why am I um, nervous? And then you could calm yourself down. So like, for instance, I do a lot of stand-up comedy. And if I'm on stage and suddenly everybody's silent, I have to ask myself, that feels real bad. Like, yeah, that's the worst feeling. Like you're telling a joke and you thought like the past 20 times, everyone laughed at that joke, but suddenly in this audience, nobody is laughing. Why is that happening? And so there's a tendency to ignore that feeling and to just start talking faster. Like you panic a little bit and you talk faster. Like I better get to the next joke fast so they can start laughing again. But the actual correct reaction is to slow down and act like a normal human because humans don't really speed up when they're talking. Act normal so they can, you can bring them back to relating to you. And you can also start to figure out, well, I'm no looking around. I'm trying to figure out what's happening here. Maybe I need to talk to the crowd a little bit more. Maybe I just mentioned the word Auschwitz and there's some people are feeling funny about it. You just have to take a step back and ask yourself, what's happening? I'm just having a conversation with them. It's just one little event in my life. It's not a big deal. I'm learning something. And, uh, you know, it's important to be always aware what the signals your body is, is telling you and then whether you should pay attention to them or not. In that case, you shouldn't panic. You should take a step back and relax. Or like sometimes my, I'll watch videos of myself. My shoulders will tighten up at that point. And that signals to the audience that I'm scared of them. They're never going to laugh again once they see someone who's scared of them. They don't. You're not relaxed. You're not into it. And they can see it's not a professional up there. It's someone who's scared. Adults don't want to see other adults trying things on stage. <laughs> they want to know that they're in the hands of a professional. So you got to take a step back and act like, a, you know, open up your shoulders and lean back and like, whoa, you know, thanks for coming to my TED Talk, but now I'll continue with the comedy. You know, so you want to reframe what's happening in the audience. And again, that's because you're aware of what's happening in your body, in your mind, you know, and then it gives you some insight into what they're going through. You can't run away from your emotions because they're there for a reason. Well, I hope everyone listening can see why James is one of my favorite authors, bloggers, thinkers, speakers, all of those other titles we gave, because he's always asking why. And I think more importantly, not only for himself, but for all of us who are listening, he's always reframing everything. And if you ever think you have a handle on it, he will reframe it and make you think in a completely different way. So thank you so much for sharing just a variety of ideas. I never knew where this would go. And I wouldn't have guessed uh, from wolves to wealth and everything in between. Thank you so much for this conversation. We so appreciate all that you do and keep writing at least 200 more books. We're looking for them. I, I, I think I this will. year, this year alone, oh, this year alone, <laughs> this year alone, perhaps, but thank you so much, Skip, for once again, for, for having me on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. I'm grateful. <laughs> well, I'm grateful for you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. And if you like what you hear, please rate us in iTunes. Until next time, remember, don't settle for the mediocre. Always aim higher.